Hey, everybody. I'm Michael Krawick, and I appeared in three different Star Treks, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Strawn in Star Trek Enterprise. And you are listening to Trek Untold. to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week on the show, we're joined by an actor who has seen it all and done a lot of very cool and very different things on television and film. And it just works out conveniently that he also happened to do some Star Trek episodes. And that gentleman's name is Michael Krawick. Michael has appeared three times in Star Trek history in three different shows. He first appeared as a Maquis member named William Patrick Samuels from the second season DS9 episode titled The Maquis. Next, he popped up in Voyager as a Katadi alien in the fourth season episode Day of Honor. Finally, his last appearance was certainly the one most Trekkies remember him from, and that was his role on the second season episode of Enterprise as the Vulcan named Strawn in that fan favorite Carbon Creek. Outside of Star Trek, you've seen Michael in shows and films like Murphy Brown, Mulholland Falls, Sliders, Seventh Heaven, Walker, Texas Ranger, Sour Grapes, CSI, The X-Files, Legally Blonde 2, Angel, Malcolm in the Middle, and Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, just to name a few. Now, what's really kind of cool and a little bit different from this interview is the fact that Michael currently resides in Thailand. So it's always fun to hear about what life is like on another part of the world, and it's pretty different from the hustle and bustle of Hollywood. Michael is a great storyteller with some stellar roles to his name, and not only that, he is someone with a real admiration for the Star Trek franchise. So let's get ready to learn all about the life and career of the very, very talented Michael Krawick. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our Teespring store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday 
and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and joining us all the way across the globe in Thailand, in fact. Uh, it's our first time talking to anybody who's in Thailand, which is really cool. We have Michael Krawick today. Michael, how's it going? Hey. Hi. Good. Awake. It's 8 a.m. here. Doing fantastic. Um, and, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? We can do this. Yeah, this is pretty amazing. I mean, to be fair, I do wish I was in Thailand with you right now. But, yeah, the fact that we can just mm -hmm. virtually do this is pretty cool. It is. Yeah. Um, are you in the East Coast or the West Coast? I think you're the East Coast, right? I'm in the East Coast. So you are in the future. You're basically almost a full day ahead of me in the future. Uh, so how is the <laughs> yeah. future, by the way? Any news? Any news to tell us? Any lotto numbers? Uh, you don't want to know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, in that yeah. case. No. Future is okay out here. It's such a – I don't want to, you know, waste a lot of time about Thailand, but it's a, it's a beautiful country. And we um, – it was a lot – you know, it was a plan that – my wife is Thai. And, uh, so we decided to move out here, you know, sort of to retire, not really retire, but sort of live out here most of the time in July, 2019. And then COVID hit and all this kind of stuff happened. So we're building a house out here in a pool and all this stuff and outdoor. So it's, it's, a. am in a beautiful area, about three and a half hours South of Bangkok on the Gulf of Thailand, you know, about two kilometers from the, the water. It's just, it's, it's very nice here. Yeah, I imagine it's a very serene, very beautiful place just to be. It, it is. I mean, you know, uh, I'm kind of in a sort of a rural, uh, rural suburban area, but it's more rural. And it's uh, so, I mean, if I just walk out the door and I look over the, the barbed wire fence to the left, I'm liable to see somebody's cows grazing <laughs> on the, uh, I mean, that's the way it is. They, there's a unique thing here where it's kind of an unwritten, unwritten rule that if you're driving your own cows and people only have like two to five to 10 cows maximum, you know, and you see them going up and down the streets, you know, the, their minder takes them on a motorcycle usually, and he's got a little thing and they follow them. They can go into any unoccupied land by tacit owner's consent just to chew the grass, graze there because uh, they just, it sort of benefits both people. The owner gets their weeds, you know, chopped down and, uh, and the uh, farmer gets to feed his cows. So this is the way it is here. It's <laughs> such a different way of life. That's pretty amazing. Oh, it's, uh, that's a whole nother Zoom conversation. Oh, yeah. You can go into that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our interview today because we got a lot to talk about with your career and especially all the Star Trek stuff. But let's just start at the very beginning, yeah. Michael. And okay. uh, can you let me know? What's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up as a kid watching it? I did. I did. I, uh, uh, the very, you know, the, the first one, Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, I just, I'd never seen anything like that before, you know, and it just, it's because of the, you know, the nature of the stories always had a moral, uh, uh, tone to it, a lesson that was always embedded within each episode, you know, I always felt like I was learning something, you know, and also as I, I didn't think about it at the time, but it was a, one of the most earliest diverse casts, you know, alien races, ethnics, you know, race, religions, uh, all thrown into one, you know, spaceship. And then all these 
life lessons that were being embedded in all the episodes. I just couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, and of course, all the swashbuckling and the, the stuff. So my favorite character really was Spock. Of yeah. course, he's the scientist. He's the explorer. I, I can see it. <laughs> yeah, but I liked everybody in that, you know, Bones and, and Bill Shatner and all those guys. I just, yeah. You know, I think you know this probably better than I, but a lot of today's astronauts have credited at various Star Trek, um, you know, generations uh, for sparking their own interest in, in space. And yeah. it kind of it influenced them, you know, Star Wars as well, but Star Trek really. Yeah, I can't so, imagine too many astronauts going out in space with lightsabers, but we'll get to that day eventually, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we know that right now you are living in Thailand, but let's back up the story of Michael Krawick for a second. Can you tell us where you were born, who your parents were, and what little Michael wanted to be when he grew up? Hmm. <laughs> born it well, I've lived in lived in probably ten, five, six, seven different places in the U.S. You know, I was born in Texas, didn't live there long, just maybe as a a baby for a year. I lived a little about a year in Mississippi, I think. I don't remember that either. And then I was in Colorado with my mom and my grandparents. My dad, they had split up my dad and mom. Who Now, the kicker to this story is I didn't know I had another father, a bio father, until I was 15 years old. Ah. That's another story. So I, the father that I knew was the guy that he, uh, that my mom married second, which was uh, out in California. So I moved to California when I was about four or five. And uh, my stepdad, who I thought was my dad, uh, was, guess what? Project engineer and all the Apollo space programs and all that <laughs> stuff. And so, I mean, I, I couldn't get away from the space thing, right? I mean, wow. it was all around. He was a, I think he was an engineer on the second stage for the, you know, the moon rocket. And then we were transferred. Uh, we lived there about 10 years and then we were transferred to Florida, Cape Kennedy. Uh, for my three last three years of high school, and I went to three different high schools actually, one in California and two in Florida. And uh, at age eighteen, my parents split. Now they had, they had, uh, my mom had six more kids after me, so I'm the oldest of seven in that family, right? So I left home at eighteen, and I ended up in Washington D.C. Uh, but all along, I'd start doing theater. You know, I did it in high school. Someone introduced me to drag me to an audition for like, I think it was Christmas Carol. He said, oh, just come. Like, oh, I, I, acting. I mean, what do you? So uh, I just, uh, it just struck a chord with me, you know. And uh, it's, I thought maybe in, I went to, I, so I put myself through college, through community college, through university, and then later through grad school. And I didn't. You asked what I want to be when I grew up. I had no no clue. I thought, I don't know, uh, doctor. I thought a lawyer for a while. I thought a psychologist. Uh, but once I got introduced to the theater and then later film and TV, that just, you know, over overrode everything. Um, so eventually I got a bachelor, a BFA in theater and directing and acting from West Virginia University which had a really great department, believe it or not, a great theater department, great facilities. But I felt that my, uh, my uh, training wasn't complete. I needed to do more. So 
I auditioned and got into one of those conservatory programs, you know, like, like Juilliard or Yale. This was the Goodman School of Drama in Chicago, which uh, had been in existence since 1925. And long story short on that school is uh, they were part of the Art Institute of Chicago. And, uh, you know, arts funding being as it is, they could no longer support that school after 50 years. So DePaul University, thankfully, absorbed school into their campus. So my class, I was in the master's, the MFA class, was the first class at the new old school at DePaul University. So uh, it was three years of pretty intense training, you know, voice, dance, speech, you know, scene work, a lot of plays and, and stuff. So um, I guess my, um, my professional career, technically it started in Summerstock a few years before that. I did a couple of years of Summerstock theater. I mean, getting paid was like, like 40 bucks a week was like unbelievable. I'm getting paid for this, you know? Um, and then uh, being, uh, luckily I was in Chicago, which has a great, great theater scene. You know, it was especially in the years I was there, you know, the famous, have you heard of the Steppenwolf Theater Company? I'm familiar pretty, with that name, yeah. Yeah, they're, they've produced John Malkovich, Laurie Metcalf, Terry Kinney, Gary Sinise, who did, you know, uh, Force Gump. And, I mean, just a ton of amazing actors. And I actually was cast in one of their shows, which was a dream that came true for me was to work with these guys, you know? Uh, so that was, so I began my professional theater career really in earnest after I graduated from uh, Goodman school drama. And, and I actually got cast in my first film or TV thing in Chicago. That's where I got my union cards. Oh, well, I'll be asking about that too in a second, but I should okay. back it up for a minute to, uh, I guess, kind yeah. of, Let's dissect high school era Michael or college era Michael. What was it about performing that actually got you into it and kept you in it? Because as you said, it wasn't really a thing you ever considered until that day you did the audition. Well, without going too heavy into, you know, family stuff, I can say that my family life was very complicated. My stepdad and my mom and, and stuff. And there was a lot of, um, it was difficult. There was a lot of stuff going on that was, you know, I, I, so I had, I was trying to find ways to kind of escape the, the, you know, the tension and the problems and being in fear a lot and stuff like that. One of the ways was reading. I would bury myself in a book, you know, and then when my buddy dragged me off to do this audition for Christmas Carol, I suddenly found an expression. I, I was fairly, as a, you know, as a, as a normal kid, I was fairly, I was kind of introverted, but I was also a weirdly kind of a clown too. You know, I was looking for attention, kind of talking this and this. And, you know, I was always trying to, because I changed schools and all this stuff, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. Right. By my senior year, I did finally, you know, but getting cast in that first play and then getting cast in the lead in the senior class play, you know. So to answer your question, I think I found a way of escaping my or channeling all these things I'd been bottling up inside. A way of using words, a way of connecting with a sort of pseudo family that you make 
with uh, theater and even with film and TV. You make a little family for a little while. So it became kind of a way of uh, being able to express myself, to connect with other people. To... This was long before I learned the how-tos, the technical stuff about acting. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I had a tremendous amount of emotion hidden and a tremendous amount of, of uh, eagerness, to, And it was fun. That's the thing. It was kind of fun, too. Um, so that's it sort of saved my life in a way, you know, honestly, in my view. You know, it was always a way to, to be able to be creative. And I mean, you know, you've heard this story a thousand times with actors, right, who've come from difficult backgrounds. I can tell you, in fact, the sentiment of just, you know, someone who moves around a lot and is trying to basically find a, a reliable, consistent way to make a family. I mean, theater has been the yeah. place where a lot of folks go, and I've heard this in the show again and again. So it's it's a very much a shared experience. It is. Um, and when you meet other actors, you begin to find you have a lot of things in common. Some of those things are difficult backgrounds. Some some people have wonderful uh, childhoods, you know, and but... I didn't appreciate it at the time, you know, Matthew, but all those things that were so difficult for me, all those things that were so difficult to fit in and the family stuff was all going in and it was all becoming, I became very observant person, you know, and, and also as, as any, I'm not likening myself to a soldier, but when you're, when you're in a situation that you're on edge all the time, you become extremely observant about everything around you. So one of the gifts I was given as a kid was I became very observant to reading the room, to reading people, to reading moods and stuff. So that was, and I became very curious about people in general. So I think as an actor, you have to have that. You have to have a curiosity about people, their behavior, culture, all these kind of things, you know. Going back to Star Trek, watching it, I always longed to be anywhere but where I was. And boy, was that a was that a place I could escape? Was you know watching shows like that? You know. Well, you mentioned Summerstock being your first theatrical paid gig, but what about TV? What was the first time you got paid for a TV gig? The first time was I did, and I don't know why it's not on IMDb. It was the very first one. It was an ABC pilot of a TV show called Lady Blue. Hmm. It was set in Chicago. It was a cop show with a a lady, a woman as the chief, you know, as the as the lead cop. And I played a bank robber. There's two of us, three of us, I think, robbing a bank, and she comes in and saves the day. You know? And I can tell you the funny thing about that is because I really had – I came from a background in theater. At that point, I'd probably done, oh, heck, 40, 50 plays, you know, maybe in my life. At least 30, 40, 50 plays at that, that point maybe. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you've done theater, but it's a kind of a different muscle you use depending on where you're playing in a 1,000-seat house or a 50-seat house. Well – what I didn't understand was, I mean, I, I had a very active role in this bank robbery, you know, where I was shooting shotguns, shot, sawed off shotguns. And I was, you know, telling everybody to get down and all this stuff. And I went in just blasting away with, with my acting, you know, and it was a, it was the wide shot. 
what I didn't realize that was that when they're shooting the wide shot, you got to save your, you got to save all that stuff for your whole stuff. <laughs> and so some actresses, I think directors say, hey, man, that was great, but save a little for when we move in on you. I went, oh, move in. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Close ups. Right. Okay. Got you. So I, I had to learn, you know, to save your energy uh, for the, the medium shots and the close in shots and stuff like that. It was a, it was a lesson I constantly had to learn as a theater trained actor that less is more. That's very much the, the economy of motion and emotion when it comes to acting on stage versus acting on screen. That's, that's a good lesson to learn. Well, I'm going to tell you a funny story. If I could just cut ahead to another project I did years later, I was working with a, uh, it was an independent film in LA and um, I had a nice role as a, the pharmacist father of one of the leads. Okay. And uh, the director was a well-known MTV director or something or music video director. I don't remember his name at the, at the moment, but so I was doing this stuff, you know, and these scenes and he came to me at one point and he says, and he was, a, I think it was a Brit. He said, Marco, he might've been an Aussie. He says, can, can I order with you, mate? I says, yeah. He goes, you know, what you done, mate, is quite good, very good. But I've got to remind you, mate, that when people go to the film and see you, your bloody head's going to be about 20 feet tall, 20 feet tall. Your bloody head's going to be 20 feet tall. So everything you do is magnified by 20 at least. So he says, mate, when I'm doing the close-ups on you, just Keep what you're doing, but bring it in hmm. because, because every little is huge. <laughs> he made me laugh, but I thought, God, what a great lesson he's given me. He's saying, doing what you're doing in the medium and the long shot, economize it. And remember the 20-foot head on a, on a movie screen, <laughs> you know. And you see the, the really, really great screen actors. They really know how to do that, you know. Everything is in the eyes or just in the thoughts. Um, and I had to learn that stuff. You know, I used to watch Michael Caine. You know, he just give these seminars. Michael Caine's incredible as far as he knows what to do with a camera and how to, you know, how to, how, how to play a scene, how to be a movie, a film actor. He really does. And, you know, I, I hate to break up this like actual serious acting talk right now, but I got to ask because there is something on your IMDb that I was really interested in. Uh, and you did ah. some work on, I mean, there's plenty of things, but there's in particular this one show, uh, which is In Living Color. And I saw that in your page, <laughs> and I was like, well, what did he do there? Because I'm really, really I, I mean, that's an awesome show. So what was your, uh, what, were, what did you do on In Living Color? Because you were on like three episodes, right? I, yeah, I think I did three or four. And it was with Jim, it was before Jim Carrey became Jim Carrey. But mm, this yeah. is what, that show, of course, catapulted him into being Jim Carrey. And uh, I, if you remember the show, there were small parts that, actors played that you know that they filled in little different parts uh in the sketches you know that the main guys were doing right the wayne brothers and all that so i played various roles i'm telling you that set was like it was like being at a party i mean it was unbelievable um and i mean i i it was really a lot of fun jim was really a nice guy he really was you know just made it made us feel comfortable and stuff like that so it was weird <laughs> it, was, it was fun yeah, because, you know, we weren't a part of the regular cast, but 
And in between takes, they cranked the music up and it was like a party, you know, like the, the Wayne brothers party, you know, and, uh, and it was very, there was an improvisational quality to it. Of course, there was sketch, sketch work that was done. And, and I love doing that kind of stuff. So I, I don't know how you ended up getting cast, but it was fun. It really was. And Living Color is just, it almost feels like a completely different era of television now because it was filmed in front oh. of a live studio audience. Like you said, they had the live music playing. So it was like so many different things happening at once. And it's a type of thing you just don't get anymore at all. No, it was very unique. Um, I was I was thinking probably the precursor would be Second City, you know, in Canada or, you know, even, uh, and of course, Saturday Night Live, but that was much more structured, you know, kind of show and sketch stuff. But yeah. Um, this was more like really hip gorilla, you know, uh, TV stuff. I mean, it was really, it was fun. It was like, uh, wow, how do I, how did I get in this world, man? I just walked in through the looking glass. This is really different, you know? And, you know, while checking out your resume and while perusing IMDb, getting all this info about you, I discovered that you were part of one of the shows that we always talk about here on Trek Untold. And that is Murder, She Wrote. And you were in the very first Murder, She Wrote movie, which, by the way, uh, and you can let me know if you work with this person or not, but it also featured another Star Trek alumni and another guest in this podcast, Mr. Richard Reilly. So uh, I would love to hear exactly what you did on the movie, because I couldn't find it to watch. But I'd love to hear what your role was and if you got to spend any quality time with Angela Lansbury. I, I did. Yes to that last question. Uh, uh, but to your first question, I played a bad guy who was... Uh, I was, I was kind of throughout. I was um, trying to remember what I did. I was like, uh, uh, I was just one of the, I was like a bad cop or something. And uh, there, I ended up, uh, we were on a train, you know, I ended up getting thrown off the train and I tried to hold her up. I was trying to, I had a gun to her head and, and stuff. And then somehow I got thrown off the train by somebody else and, you know, I died. Um, so I had a bunch of little scenes with, with her and then with a couple other people. Um, and it was fun because I insisted on doing my own, my own stunt. You know, <laughs> it was a moving train. And I, I thought, can I uh, throw myself off? Oh, well, we don't know about that. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I said, well, let me try. So, you know, I, I, I did it a few times. Then he had a stunt guy do it, too, because they were worried about me breaking my back or something, you know. So... <laughs> But I don't think I'm not sure if I was killed. No, I wasn't killed on it because I remember I was thrown off the train. I remember one of the last shots of me was like, uh, like getting to my feet, yeah, you know, and like woozy. The train is headed down the tracks, and you know, I'm I'm now irrelevant, right? So, <laughs> but to your second question, there was a lot of, as you know, in film and TV, and especially even a TV movie, there's a lot of downtime. So I parked myself right next to where she sat on our, you know, in the, on the set. She couldn't have been nicer. She regaled us with stories. Uh, she asked me questions about me. You know, she talked about uh, her background and her theater background and, uh, you know, her television film career and stuff. And that, for me, that was one of the best parts was, was working with Angela you know, she just was a true uh, warm-hearted star, you know, not pretentious in the least, but a real pro. I mean, yeah. 
And another show we love to discuss here on Trek Untold, which is totally unrelated to Star Trek, but it's Walker, Texas Ranger. And you were in yeah. season six episode, which is called uh, Forgotten People, and you played Dr. John Daniels. And uh, you know, in addition to getting some time with Chuck Norris, you also got to work with Wilford Brimsley pretty closely. As I mean, the finale of the episode is you tying him up. And uh, you also got to work with another great character actress named Gail Strickland, who is also a Deep Space Nine yes. alumni. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear if you have any memories about your time on set on Walker. Yeah, um, I didn't meet, I didn't have any scenes with Chuck Norris in that particular episode. I mean, you know, it, my stuff was mostly with who was the uh, his second in command. Um, it was uh, uh, he was a very serious guy, African American actor. Oh yeah, talking about um, the, uh, Clarence Gilliard. Yeah, yeah, that was that was my antagonist because I played a a you know, and Gail was my uh, was we were like bad doctors. I mean, we were, I don't forget what we were doing. We were some formula. We were doing something illegal. Yeah. It was, you were, and you were, I was throwing some illegal pharmaceuticals to, uh, I think a lot of older people and, uh, and eventually you did get yeah. to smooch her also, which is uh, one of the perks of being evil, I guess. That's right. So I was kind of second under Gail Strickland, who was the, the experimental doctor. And I was, you know, doing what she told me. I was kind of scared of her, but Gail and I got to talk a lot. And it was really neat. She, she's, she's, she's a great lady. And, uh, in fact, I think we had the same manager for a while, Beverly Dean, Hollywood, um, because Beverly knew Gail as, as well, very well. Um, and, uh, also I worked with, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember her name now. Uh, but I met a couple of, uh, yeah, I met a couple of people I still stay in touch with from that episode. Um, but I didn't, I met Chuck, but I didn't really get to know him. You know, I mostly worked with Clarence and uh, Gail in that thing. Another bad guy, another bad dude, you know. I always play, a lot of times I play these bad guy lights, I call them. Not the real heavy bad guy, but, you know, sort of the sidekick bad guy or the second bad guy or a smarmy bad guy. It's happened a few times. I don't know why. It's weird to me, too, because, I mean, talking to you now, there's not a bad bone in your body as far as I can tell, but for every reason, I mean, that's, that's usually how it is, though, isn't it? It's usually, like, the nice guys who play the best bad guys. That's what I hear, yeah. I mean, it, it, and every actor will tell you, and they've told you, that the, the most fun parts are playing bad guys. You know, you got to get to tap into that part of you that's kind of a, you know, it's a certain energy that you you aren't in life, but it is inside everybody. You know, you get to try to access that for a while, you know, make-believe. So it's, it's fun. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Nego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. 
As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Nav, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. We do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lower Decks or... Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. All right, well, Michael, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion here because we got a few different roles mm. to talk about. And uh, mm. so your first time ever was in the second season DS9 episode, The Maquis. And you yes. play a character named William Patrick Samuels. He's a saboteur yes. who plants an explosive on DS9, uh, gets yeah. to have some fun with the Cardassians. Uh, so let's just start at the very beginning here. So do you remember what the auditioning process was like? Um, well, uh not specifically, but I do remember meeting, you always meet in those days, you, it was Junie Lowry Johnson and, uh, Ron Serma were the two casting directors. And Junie Lowry Johnson, of course, did many, you know, she did Voyager, then she did Enterprise. And so it's sort of like if you get into the Star Trek family and you don't screw it up, you know, and they kind of like you, they'll often bring you back for, later in the same series or in a new series that they've generated, which was, which you'll get to, but that happened to me. Um, I do remember being in the room with uh, um, Rick Berman, you know, as one of the co-creators of that. Uh, Roddenberry was not in the, in the room for that. In fact, I, I'm not sure he had, would you know this? I think I read that he didn't have direct involvement with DS9. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, by the time DS9 was happening, he was pretty much phased out. Uh, I, I think, well, yeah, by the time you were working, he would have still been alive, I'm pretty sure. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. But I think pretty fairly yeah. early on in, in TNG, they kind of started to change his role a little bit. So by the time Deep Space Nine happened, his, his hands would have been more or less off of that. Yeah, but we, I think we all felt sort of an homage to him, though, because of his vision and uh, the kind of content that he helped create and influence and stuff. So we always think of him, you know, anybody who's ever worked on Star Trek 
Um, but I do remember that I had to go back a couple of times for, you know, the second audition. Um, and, uh, and boy, when you get that first call that you got booked on a Star Trek, I mean, talking about pinching yourself, I'm like, wait a minute, wasn't I just watching this one as a kid? But of course, it's a completely different setup. You're on a space station, you're not in a spaceship and all that. But it was, you know, it had the same sorts of things going on, you know, the difficulty with races and the, you know, power struggles and all this stuff. And, and I was a terrorist, as you know, right? Yeah, which I enjoyed doing. So uh, planting that bomb on the, you know, on the, on the vehicle, on the vessel. Um, but I don't survive, as you know, either, yeah. right? So, yeah, whatever happens to you, I think it's implied off screen, but yeah, you uh, didn't make it out of there for whatever reason. But uh, yeah, let's yeah. actually, you know, being a Star Trek fan or someone who grew up watching it, you know, DS9 is a pretty different kind of Star Trek show. So when you get Real there, when different. you get on set, I mean, what did you think of this place? And again, this is second season, so it's still fairly early in this show's run, but what did you think of mm -hmm. the sets and how different they looked? I mean, was this like anything you'd done before? No. Absolutely not. Um, and I discovered it on every set that I worked on uh, later with Voyager and then with Enterprise. But uh, they had, I mean, it was all, you know, inside, I think, Stage 9 or something. I can't remember, but it was uh, a Paramount. First of all, look, first of all, just to walk the Paramount lot. Okay, check that off your bucket list, right? I mean, the first time I'm like, oh, man. I can't believe this, you know. Every time I walked on a lot for the first time in L.A., it was like, wahoo, you know. It was really <laughs> lots of fun. And uh, But then it became, you know, once you, you're there, you're there about a week as a guest star and um, became kind of used to it. But the sets were so realistically fake, fake realism, that you, you just can't believe it. I mean, they, they have curved... You know, they had like a curved rooms and stuff because the spaceship is curved. And they had, you know, uh, just facsimiles of of, uh, of uh, buttons and this and this and stuff like that. And uh, but DS9 was very different than when I did Voyager or Enterprise because I wasn't on a ship. You know, it wasn't uh, it was more like being in different rooms, mm -hmm. stuff like that, you know. So, um yeah, that's what I remember. It was a, a lot of bells and whistles. Um, a lot of different sets were different parts of the set. Uh, the lighting was very unique. You know, it was uh, real moody at times, real moody lighting and stuff, as you remember, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Much darker show than the original, that's for sure. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Now, for, for the most part, you know, you're playing this terrorist character who we, we do see later on just in plain civilian clothes, but you did get to put on a Starfleet uniform. And that... I'd imagine it must have been pretty awesome. So yeah, just tell me what it's like to to get into that, and also more importantly, how horribly tight was that to wear? It was tight. Yeah, I mean they just you know I mean I'm a pretty thin guy, but uh, they uh, they find what and they just it's like stretch whatever the material is. But to put that on and look at myself in the mirror with the logo, right? You know, Matthew, this it's just again I'm like I was having an out of body moment every time I did anything that. I used to watch on, you know, on the show or on a, on a, you know, next generation or on the original. Uh, so I just felt like 
like I was uh, like Halloween, you know, like I was a kid at Halloween and except this was really happening, you know, it was a camera <laughs> following me around and stuff. So it was pretty exciting. I have to say, I tried to act like it didn't, you know, like it was no big deal, but I'm telling the inside. <laughs> I was an five-year-old kid again or eight-year-old kid whatever i was you know seven-year-old kid <laughs> now you know unfortunately most of your scenes were not with the main bridge crew it wasn't with avery brooks yeah. or a non-visitor or any of those folks but did you get right. to uh, talk with any of them at all in between takes uh no not really because a lot of times uh they shoot things separately mm-hmm. and they're not called if they're not in that scene they're not even on set they're either in their trailer or they might be shooting another setup somewhere. Um, but so not really. And when I wasn't shooting, I went to my little trailerette. You know, they have trailers for you. They have room for you. So I just, I uh, I didn't, you know, bug, I didn't hang around and bug people, things like that. I just kind of stayed to myself. Um, but I talked to, uh, what was his name? The, uh, the, with the big ears. Uh, uh, Armin Shimmerman. Armin Shimmerman. Really great guy. Really funny guy. Wonderful to work with him, you know, and talk with him. So I did have a lot of conversations with him. He was, and you know, he's the kind of guy that makes a guest star feel really comfortable. He knows, you know, you're walking into an existing rhythm. Uh, they've got something going. They've got their own chemistry and stuff. And, you know, he, he remembers what that's like. And so he always tried to make guest stars very comfortable. I would say everybody did, but I remember him particularly. Uh, that's good to hear, and I'm, as I'm sure you probably know from talking with him, Armin's also, you know, he's a guy that comes from the theater world, and I've always felt like the folks come from theater versus the folks come from TV, there's there's a big difference between them, and not to say that one is better than the other or how they interact is better than the other, but theater people seem to be very open and just like, hey, how's it going? They'll just come right up to you and start hugging you. It's, it's kind of different from, you know, maybe TV where it's a little bit more closed off at times. That's an interesting point, and I'd, I'd say, generally speaking, you're probably right about that, and, you know, you bring up a good point about the Star Trek um, genre is that a lot of the actors uh, came from heavy theater background. Yeah. The reason why is because a lot of those, uh, the work they have to do, a lot of the speeches are very muscular. I mean, they, they, it's you have to have some chops to to you know do some. It's almost Shakespearean. Some of those the stuff they did in uh, Next Generations and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, uh, lots of theater background, and then. If you have time, downtime, you end up invariably talking about, oh, where have you worked? And, you know, yeah, I worked with that director. And, oh, yeah, yeah. You work at that theater? You know, but if they, if people come from a theater background, you're kind of, uh, with that show, it was respected. You know, in fact, I remember my agent said they like actors with theater background. They seek them because it's, there's a lot involved with, especially the main characters. They have a lot to do and it's, you know, it's, uh, they, they really wanted experienced people. So, yeah. And like you say, there's a little bit of a fraternity with theater people and stuff like that. So, you know, the other scene that you did as this character was not really amongst other crew members. It was a scene that was filmed separately. You were filmed solo for this and it was then in the episode played on a monitor in front of uh, Starfleet and Cardassian officials. Uh, so I'm just kind of curious when you did this other scene, that was done solo. Was that on the same day as when you were on the bridge doing everything else? Or was that a separate payday for you? You mean you're still t- with DS9? Yeah, with DS9. 
Oh, uh, where was I? Was I on the bridge then? Or what was that part? So the two scenes you had is basically mo- uh, most of your time was on the Deep Space Nine space station. But there's another yeah. scene that you did where I guess you had a pre-recorded message that the Cardassians filmed. And Yeah. Usually, and, and I discovered this again with Voyager, um, uh, it, it, you're often um, looking at a red dot for your for those you know those message ones, right leaving a message so it was very much in a, not in a separate studio but a separate part of the stage you know where they set up a little area that's sort of neutral unless they want the background then they put you in the background and just do it in you know extreme close-up of you but what you're looking at is often uh, a red dot next to the camera or you're looking into the camera depending what they want you know they want to you know direct on I'm just talking to you kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, and uh, that's a challenge because there's no other actor. You're just looking at a dot on the wall, you know, and you have to make it work. But if you're doing – basically, it's like doing a monologue, you know, from uh, – uh, like in a theater. So I'm kind of used to that. You've got to do long speeches sometimes. <laughs> and as you mentioned, you, you did have to do that also in Voyager, which we'll get to in a second. But I just, I don't yeah. know if you remember, because this is super nerdy, but was that the same day? Like, like was your shoot more than one day or was it just kind of the one day and that was it for you? No, there were, uh, I was in several days, um, okay. but there were some days I didn't work, but I, I was on the entire uh, 10 days or seven days, they allot for the thing. I, I must have worked two or three days out of that, but they pay you for the, they pay for the week, you know, kind of thing in that case, if you're a guest star. So they can use you any amount of days. Well, that's the joy of uh, acting. It's just wait and go. Yeah. Hurry up and wait, we used to say. Yep. <laughs> they, they, they rush you to get ready and then you sit around a lot, you know. So you have to keep your motor running and uh, actors do it in different ways to kind of keep fresh or to keep, you know, from getting, <laughs> you know, losing your energy. Yeah. Well, your time as Samuels uh, came to an end because you didn't make it out of that episode alive, but we did see you again not no. too long after because you were, as we mentioned, in Voyager. And uh, that yeah. was in, uh, an episode from the fourth season, which is called Day of Honor. And uh, that one, you were a Katadi alien named Raman. And uh, yeah, this is a curious looking character here. So uh, I, I assume you, you got back here because Junie Lowry was like, hey, this guy's awesome. Let's bring him back. So you're back for this role. Did you know you were going to be an alien covered in however many pounds of prosthetics and makeup that was going to be? Um, going into the audition, yeah, I I knew a little bit about it. I knew that it was an alien captain. You know, uh, I had no clue what that was going to entail, Matthew. <laughs> and but I was excited because I knew that you know they were award winning uh, makeup artists. You know, I knew that already. You know, from the incredible uh, work they did. You know, generation, next generations, and all the other stuff. All the they just amazing uh but i had no idea about what that was going to involve which involved about four hours in the chair yeah and you show up about three in the morning four in the morning and you just you know they just build it and you you just can't believe it and then then he said the difficulty with people doing the mask work you know is making it your own so that it doesn't play you you have to play it Hmm. um and I can see why, because you really, it was very difficult to do, Matthew, because sensorily, you're cut off in a way. You know, even your ears are slightly muffled because of the prosthetic, you know. 
So it was like weirdly being underwater in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, and, but you had a, and again, you know, you'll get to this, but again, I had a, you know, a scene with Janeway, right? But it was on the monitor. Again, I'm looking at a red dot. So I had nobody, I had somebody off camera delivering lines. So I never even met her. <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, four hours in the chair and about an hour and a half out of the chair, you know. Wow. Had you ever done prosthetics before? Um, hmm. Not like that. No, hmm. I don't think so. I may have done minor things, you know, mu- mustaches and yeah. funny wigs and things like that, but not a full other than Halloween, you know, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, those Katadi aliens, that's a pretty intense makeup job. And I got to imagine if that's your first time doing it. That's going to pretty much be the moment where you discover whether or not you're claustrophobic. Yeah. And it, you're, you're completely covered. And um, the makeup uh, people were really helpful to me in saying, you know, make it work. Don't, don't let it overwhelm you, the mask, you know, let it work for you. Right. Otherwise, you know, uh, Otherwise, it's just a pair of eyes behind a mask. You know, it's not a real creature. So, but it was, I'd never seen any creature like that before. I'm just like, oh, they had some crazy aliens in Voyager. I got really hand with them. They went, uh, they went a little nuts on that show with those designs. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I have to yeah. admit that, uh, you know, I didn't realize at first until I checked IMDb later on that there actually were two different people playing that species. I actually thought it was just you the whole time. But as I learned later on, it's actually Alan Altschuld who played the character that we actually see on the bridge. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that. So did you actually get to spend any time at all really on the bridge or was it all just the stuff you did solo? Just stuff I did solo, um, which I, I don't know why they did. It wasn't the same character though, right? It was different, no, it was a different, different character. character. I was going to actually ask you about that. Cause like, I was wondering, yeah. they, they didn't really introduce that there was two different Katadi aliens. It was just, you're on the screen. Next time we see him, it's Alan Altshield and he's hanging out with Captain Janeway. So, like, do you remember a scene where you, like, introduced yourselves or anything like that? Was there anything else that, like, maybe didn't make it to air? Oh, I don't really know. I don't remember now. It's kind of a, a shadow memory. I don't remember why that happened. Um, but I know that they shot my scene, which is really a lot of pressure is that it's the last, it's the martini shot, they call it. It's the last shot of the day. And you know those days go 12, 14 hours, right? Oh, yeah. My only shot of the day, but it's the crew's last shot of the day. So you're feeling a little like, let's get this done kind of feeling, right? I mean, they don't rush you, rush you, but there's a little pressure and they kind of nailing it. And I had a lot to say, you know, so. Uh, but I don't know why I didn't uh, do the bridge stuff. It was kind of strange. Because what I had to say was pretty important, you know, um, requesting help and being, you know, we were assimilated, right, by the Borg, the, yep. the Katari people and all this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know why. I can't remember. I don't remember being told, well, we don't want you on the bridge. I'm, there was nothing, nothing weird like that that I remember. It's just one of those weird things in Star Trek history because even uh, there's like apparently an, an encyclopedia that came out long, long time ago that – uh, also neglects to mention that they're two separate characters. So it's like no one really even knew this. It's just a weird, bizarre thing that happened. Well, I mean, I ostensibly calling from my own ship, right? Yeah. My vessel. And we're kind of adrift, right? Or we're kind of, and obviously there's other, a few other people on the, on the, on the deck, right? Or, you know, there's other few of us left. Yeah. Uh, 
but why they didn't do a cut to a medium of me, you know, speaking through the thing, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know why it's just like you say, it's kind of a head scratcher. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering too, cause I've heard this story from other actors where, you know, they're in super duper heavy makeup and they're probably just waiting around all day to do that scene. Like you just mentioned that scene probably takes them a few minutes. So, and you're telling me that's the martini shot. So what was your day like as, as that character? Like, were you actually just there for 15 hours, just waiting to go all makeup out? Hurry up and wait. Wow. Uh, that whole ensemble you in, and that whole outfit. That's crazy. Yeah. They call you in, uh, early, I guess. And, and, uh, and then you do the four hours and then you wait until it's, it's time. So, you know, it kept going on and on. And then finally it was, it was time. So, um, and you know, you're, it's like you don't hear real well. So like you said earlier you know it's, it feels like a, uh, you're kind of underwater a little bit so to make that appear natural or you know uh to, to make the the character come through the mask was the key and you know i hope i did i mean it was uh it's a kind of as i remember the monologue it was a very uh i i remember you know the scene with Janeway when i watched it later it's a, it's a very heartfelt scene you know it's a very uh emotional exchange you know, exchange between these two captains and uh, a lot of uh, empathy was expressed by her, you know, so. Luckily, your final Star Trek appearance that we're going to talk about was uh, a lot less makeup. And uh, I would say it's definitely the mediest role you had in this franchise. So we're now jumping ahead to the second season of Enterprise in what I think is easily one of the best episodes of Enterprise ever. Uh, and that would be Carbon Creek. So yeah. again, walk us through the audition or casting process. Was this just, again, Junie remembering you and saying, I got something for you? Yeah, at this point, I think Rick Berman, uh, not Rick, uh, uh, Ron Serma was probably running a lot of the, the auditions and Jenny was, had different projects and stuff. And, and were they doing, uh, no, they were just doing uh, Enterprise at that time, right? But, um, so Ron called me and said, they want to see you again. And, uh, I said, well, what's the, what's the party? He says, well, it's a Vulcan. I went, you, you're kidding. Cause as I told you earlier, before we went on the air here, my favorite character was Spock, of course, growing up. And I said, you, you're kidding me. So I said, no. So uh, I, I just had to go in and, and do one of the scenes in the audition room. Just one audition this time, went right to producers. And uh, it was kind of a very warm feeling in the room. And I felt like I did a good job. But, you know, I felt like that a lot of times when I didn't get work. You know, you go in and do your thing. And most of the time you don't get the job. You know, that's just life of an actor. But I felt like because I had done the other two, that there was some maybe some sort of edge <laughs> I had hoped. And it worked out. Yeah. Set in what, nineteen fifty seven Carbon Creek, Pennsylvania. Yep. And as you know better than I probably, um it was it's 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 a story told in, in flashback from her great grandmother, right? Her, her uh, second foremother, as she called it. Her second foremother, <laughs> and said, "Oh, no, got to no, make no. things always more complicated." Yeah. Oh no, that what you said before. That wasn't the first contact with humans and Vulcans. <laughs> the first contact was, and then she tells the story, and then, um, but it was very unique, wasn't it, Matthew? I mean, this whole going down to Earth and trying to fit in with 1957 humans, and <laughs> it was wild. And yeah. I think that's one of my things that I, I like so much about this episode is because, you know, you are a bunch of aliens living in 50s America, 
And then a lot of the plot, it's almost like typical American movie fare of the time even. And it's like you're just kind of almost playing these cliched characters, but you're Vulcans as you do it. Yes. So we were, um, you know, we don't express a lot of emotion, in, at least not on the surface. Although my, my running, as you know, Mestro, my, you know, my running mate, yep. but as you know, decided to stay. Yep. And uh, it, that was, uh, I think he had the emotional, um, he, he was the emotional center of that, uh, of the group. You know, I wanted to get the hell out of there. You know, couldn't stand these people. They smell, they don't, I don't like the way they act. And I was a real, I was a real curmudgeon, you know, I just was like, are we there yet? Are we there? I was that kind of a guy, right? And, um, but Mestrel was, uh, uh, it was a great character. And this, this, that guy, I forgot his name, but he was a great guy and a wonderful actor we worked yeah, in. That's, that's uh, Jay Paul Bomer, in fact. And we're going to be chatting with him on this show coming up very soon. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to get you guys together in this format, which is really fun. Please tell him, Paul, hello, because he was, uh, we stayed in touch for a while after we did the episode. Um, but this was still before the days of, um, you know, apps and things like that. I mean, it was yeah. 19, it was 2002. So it was, uh, you know, yeah. beginning Cusp of those of the things. Internet. Cusp of the internet. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was just amazing, you know, to put on those ears and they let me keep the ears. You know? Oh, I was going to ask you well, to keep those ears. <laughs> got to keep them. Well, I think half the reason I got cast Matthew is because <laughs> when I got to makeup trailer, the makeup guy says, Oh, well, this is going to be easy because if you notice my ears, they're already a little alien-like. I mean, they're already a little elongated. In fact, I was told by a medium at some carnival, you know, where you walk in and they tell your fortune that I was an alien, that I came from another planet before and I was reincarnated. I said, oh, oh really? Oh, okay. So, oh, yeah. She said, oh, yeah, your ears. That gives it away. So, years later, I get cast in Star Trek because of the years, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, we mentioned J. Paul Bomer, uh, and you're also spending a lot of your time on screen with Jolene Blalock, who was to Paul yeah. typically, but in this case, again, she's her second foremother. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, what memories do you have from working with those two on set? Cause you guys were pretty much, you know, the three Musketeers in this episode together. You're pretty much doing all your scenes together. We were, and you know, she was terrific, um, in terms of just kind of, a created, we created this little mini, mini family, you know, out of the, the macro family. Right. And so it was real easy working together. Uh, there was no, she wasn't, she didn't do a star thing. You know, she was, uh, it was really about the work. Uh, and, and you know, Jay Paul was, was, was terrific and, and they all come from theater backgrounds. So it was, you know, we were, uh, we had a lot in common. Um, and, uh, just doing the various setups and scenes were, was, was, uh, it was, it was time consuming, but it was fun. And that was where I first, you know, uh, was able to, uh, you know, go to a, was in the ship. I was in a ship, right. And I was able to actually push buttons and stuff like that. And I'm going, Oh my goodness. I'm in a starship. Finally. (laughs) So, you know, Strawn is a pretty fun character at times, despite being ever so serious and very much cynical of what's happening around him. And I got to say, I also love that three stooges hairdo that he has. Um, but you know, the thing that we mentioned yes. and that you, you well know as well, cause you're a big fan of stock, you know, Vulcans don't really show emotion and it oh. was Mistral, J. Paul Bomer, who his character got to be the one showing more outward emotions, but yeah. Strawn, he is, he is Vulcan to the core and there was not really much going on there. So 
Now, I'd no. like to hear from you, was it a challenge to play a character like this who doesn't really emote in the same way you typically do with other characters? Yes. In a word, it was a challenge. Uh, I go back to that story I told you about, <laughs> Less is More, you know, with that, that director who, Less is really more here. I mean, it's really about processing. And it's like a, you know, a curiosity, but it's, it's not a, it's, it's no overreaction. It's underreaction of anything. You know, it's all sort of understated and stuff. So it was a real challenge for me to, to, you know, not be a robot. He's not, they're not robots. They're, they're, you know, they're flesh and blood, you know, uh, just other creatures who process things a little bit different, you know, and, uh, I really took inspiration from Spock. I kind of went back and watched Spock a lot because he was half human, uh, which was always his dilemma, right? But he, you know, uh, you know, half breed kind of a guy, right? But uh, I, I took a lot of, um, you, you know, I, I went back and watched him because he was my model. You know, what's fascinating, Michael, and yes, I'm using the Spock word here. Uh, what's fascinating is when you start to talk about how you do this character, you start to actually fall into Strawn a little bit. I don't know if you're aware of that. You started just kind of, the way you were talking, it sort of, sort of became Vulcan. Yeah. Um, yes. It, a little bit. It's like sort of getting on a bike again. You know, if you, you can revisit characters you've played, it may take a while to get it back. But, but for a week there, I was strong. <laughs> and how they just process things like, hmm, well, I don't agree, you know, or, or whatever. I can't remember any of the lines, but um, wasn't I, did I? I can't remember if I went in. Did we go into? We went into some. We went into the town, right? I think I, I went into the town. I, I we all took jobs, as I remember, right? And I became a plumber. <laughs> yeah, you were the plumber who worked for the lady next door. <laughs> yeah. but I was secretly using Vulcan technology to repair this yeah. pipes and stuff, like that. which is against the, uh, was that against the prime directive? Did I, Oh no, I, there was no, no, no prime you were doing that in secret. So they never knew. They never knew. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, that, that kind of stuff was really fun to do. I mean, it feels like this part really did leave behind some big memories for you. And, you know, I, I want to just, Maybe take a second to kind of appreciate this here, because now, you know, now we've talked about an hour and I kind of know a little bit more about your history and backstory. You know, we talked earlier about your love of this character, your love of Spock, and there's, I'm sure, a reason why Spock was your favorite. But then on top of that, you know, we talked about your your family a little bit and just you finding theater as a way to find family. And Strawn is a character that is very much, you know, I feel like the embodiment of a lot of parts about you. If you think about it, you know, it's he's a Vulcan mm-hmm. number one, which there's something in there that, that has drawn you to that type of character, to that species. Mm-hmm. And then yes. here you are, you basically, this character finds his family. His family is with Jolene Blalock and with J. Paul Bomer. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you ever have, have thought about that before, but just, you know, chatting with you now, it's something that just kind of occurred to me. Yeah, you're quite right. Um, you know, it became a family within a family, right? So the, the, the we had to create a family, and we were actors as family, and then there's the Star Trek family, so it was like concentric circles of family. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's in the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, Matthew, it's, I think the best part, you know, I hear a lot of athletes, they say, do you miss playing the game? Do you miss the, this? they say, well, I do, but it's not what I really miss. I say, what do you miss? Athletes always say, I miss the team, the camaraderie, the family that's created in a team. And so 
it's very much like that in in TV film and to lesser or greater degrees. I've been on sets where <laughs> it's uh it's a little different, you know, and it's uh, it's you go in and do your thing and you're not really included on anything. And especially if you're not a star, you know, you're treated differently and stuff like that, but that's just the way it is. But once in a while you have experiences where people become friends, you create a kind of pseudo family for a while and you don't forget it. You know, I don't forget those moments with those people. Um, I, uh, this is a little digression, but one of my very favorite roles I ever did was one scene in a TV show called Seventh Heaven. You remember that show? Yep. And um, it was, uh, I don't know if you have time for this, for this sure. short story. Go ahead. All right. Stage well, is yours. The, uh, the guy, I forget his name, Stephen, Stephen, somebody was the lead. He played, basically played a minister. It was also, a, a you know, he had kids and all this yep. stuff. And he was the He pastor. was also in uh, right. the first Star Trek motion picture. Oh, he, oh, that's right. He was. Yeah, that's right. And he had done a lot of stuff. So uh, he uh, was having a lot of nightmares in this episode about a Halloween was coming up, you know, and his nightmare was it was a memory of when he was a kid. And when he was a kid, uh, the teacher would bring in or everyone would bring in all these masks. Right. And no one was allowed to grab a mask until recess or until the end of the day. Right. So his nightmare is he remembers a time when uh, the teacher says, okay, you can go grab a mask. And he pushes this other little kid away who's holding the mask he wants. And he basically bullies him, you know, and pushes him away and is mean to him. And the kid says to him, I got it for you. Hmm. And he's been haunted you know, by this, me <laughs> this memory. And so he says to, he says to somebody, I, I, I got to find this kid. Cause I can't, I just, I've never forgiven myself for, you know, what happened. So he searches me out. I'm the kid, right? I was the kid in elementary school with him. So it's such a beautiful scene. Cause he, he knocks on the door. I answer the door. I don't know who he is. And he holds the mask up, Matthew. And he says, I, uh, I, I brought this, I brought it, this mask back. I think it really should belong to you. And my character at first is confused and then it all comes back to him. Hmm. And they have this incredibly touching, lovely scene together where, uh, he apologizes, you know. And I accept the apology, and it's just this. I'm telling you, crews on any TV show or movie are very hardened guys and gals, you know? They're not moved. But when we shot this scene, there were the entire crew was crying. It was so moving, you know, because you talk about an instant. I'd never met Stephen before, but. When we played the scene and then afterwards, we felt like we knew each other very well. And we, you know, we just, it was like this big hug and, you know, it was amazing. So when you have moments like that, where the script is beautiful and the actor is a giving actor, 
And the scene is interesting, you know, whether it's a fun one, you know, comedy or whether it's something like this, you re- always remember those actors. You always remember that scene. And you, you know, that's what I remember are, are those kinds of moments, Star Trek moments like that, you know? It's interesting when you actually open up and give an authentic emotion to another performer, it's like suddenly, even if that emotion wasn't yours, it's now become a shared thing between you and that person. And now it's, it's somehow, you, despite just playing characters, it now just feels so real to you. It, it, it absolutely was two human beings connecting. Yeah. And when that happens, and it doesn't happen all the time, Matthew, when that happens, it's magic. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it was obviously one of my very favorite memories of, uh, of, of an acting memory. And it was very brief. It was, uh, you know, I invite him in. So you want to come in for a cup of coffee? And so he does. And then, you know, he, he's able to move on from his nightmares, you know, because he, the, the lesson was about forgiveness, right? And, and making amends, things like that. Things that are very, very hard to do, Yeah. you know, but uh, yeah, it was great. I'm just extra glad you told that story because it still is tied to Star Trek because Stephen Collins in the movie. So that's just perfect timing. Yeah, he was. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. Thanks for reminding me about that. I forgot. I forgot too. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek. I mean, everybody wanted to be on one of those shows, didn't they? I mean, they clamored the film actors. You know, they wanted to be appear on a show like that, you know. A show like NYPD Blue, same thing. And they, the, the people who became guest stars wanted to appear on that tv show because it's such integrity and such you know um, great stories and stuff like that when you have something like that happen people want to be a part of it don't they so michael you know we talked about a lot of really exciting things here and there's a lot of things we didn't mm-hmm. get to cover today in this interview but i'd like to hear from you yeah. what was your best day on a set what was your worst day on a set any set any set best day on a set wow you caught me unprepared here best day on a set well, I had a lot of best days on sets. Um, it, probably um, doing uh, doing Enterprise uh, and, and doing some of those scenes in the kitchen there was was pretty was one of, was a great day. Uh, the Seventh Heaven scene that I did was a fantastic uh, day on a set. Um, you know, working with Angela Lansbury, and I've, I've had a lot of good days on sets. Um, uh, Worst day on the set. Yeah, let's see. Hmm. Trying to remember. Um, boy, I can't remember like a something that just you know was sticks out. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't remember a, a, like a worst day on a set that I you know it's like just a horrible nightmare memory. I don't remember that, but I do remember. Um, and when I did. Um, what was the movie? It was uh, Mulholland Falls. It was, mm. a, it was uh, you know, a film with a lot of stars in it. Was uh, and what's his name's uh, brother was in that? Um, uh, uh, he died actually, uh, but it was a you know, it was Michael Madsen was in that, and uh, Nick no, no, it was a you know, quite a cast. And I had a small role, but one of those guys really did a star thing, you know, and came in and was telling people to move around and, you know, and, and was just being a real, you know, what and said mm-hmm. that was not a pleasant day for any of us who were playing the smaller parts, you know, it just was a, it was just a real weird, weird, weird set. 
Yeah. So maybe that was it. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he didn't have a lot of bad days. That's a pretty good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of days that were in between worst days and best days. You know, a lot of days that went, you know, some things went real well. And, um, you know, um, even when I did that movie in Bulgaria, I did a, a blood sport number four. Yeah. I mean, it Dark was Kumite. crazy. Dark Kumite, yeah. It was a fun, I, such a fun role. But very, almost like guerrilla filmmaking, you know. I mean, it was really <laughs> low budget and stuff, but it was fun. And I met lifelong friends from that film. So that was that was a pretty good experience. Not a good film, but a good experience. <laughs> like, that's your words, not mine. I'm not going to touch yeah. that one. But I, I like the Bloodsport series. They're fun. Um, yeah. But how about uh, a moment or a role from your performing career that was the most challenging for you, but ultimately became the most rewarding? Most challenging, most rewarding. Um, <clears throat> well, do, as I talked to you earlier about doing the uh, ramen, the that was a very challenging wearing that prosthetic. But I think the speech came out okay. You know, as I recall watching it, it was okay. Uh, it was it was rewarding. There were a lot of other you know stuff. I'd have to look at. I should have had my MDB you know pulled up here so I can kind of refer to things I did, but. Um, Oh, I'll tell you what was hard, but rewarding. I did paranormal activity, um, like number four or something. And uh, very challenging because you had to, you know, I was kind of the exorcist priest and I was, you know, playing to things that weren't there, things that weren't moving, you know, and it was a kind of a scary thing. Um, but it was it was very rewarding in the end to do that, you know, because uh, it was a lot of improv. Um Basically, the set, the, the the script sort of changed magically right before your eyes. They'd rewrite right there on the spot, and you you know, and these the actors who were the the regular actors. I I had a recurring role on uh, in the movie. You know, I kept coming back until I was killed. But they said it was it's like this every day. I said, how do you work like this? You know, this is so scary. You know, because I'm a guy that come from the theater. The words are king. So. The words are like, oh, whatever, just something about like, you know, like, wow, okay. So it really challenged me to be more improvisational and to trust, you know, what was going on. So probably the most challenging and one of the most rewarding because <laughs> I made it through it. Yeah. So, so the real paranormal activity was actually the script. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. I'm allowed one bad joke every interview, Michael. It's a very good joke. And it was a little scary because I had to say a lot of stuff in Latin. You know, a lot of priest stuff. And that was a little, I'd watched too many exorcist movies. I was like, okay, <laughs> what's going to happen here? You know? So that's it. Yeah. All right. Well, how about most valuable lesson you've learned, whether that was about acting or about life or maybe both that you ever was were told by someone? Be prepared, be honest, uh, be flexible. My Boy Scout training, <laughs> be prepared. But, you know, that's it. And, you know, um, Try to be flexible because life is always changing. And if you don't, if you're not flexible with life, it's going to snow you under. There's a lot of things that happen in life, you know, both wonderful and not so wonderful things. So, All right. So, Michael, last thing for today, uh, and this is the most important yeah. one here. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Wow. Uh, being part of the legacy of the kind of storytelling and um, lesson episodes uh and the the kind of camaraderie that exists you know the passing the torch on from each 
series to the next to the next. Um, and the lessons about the most obvious things are, you know, how, how, how can we all get along as species, as creatures, as, you know, what are the life lessons embedded in each of these, each episode of every Star Trek, you know? Um, so I, I just appreciate the sort of moral uh, lessons and, you know, things that are in every Star Trek. It's it's a series with substance, and I'm so proud to be a part of a, a little small part in that and to have been able to play parts that I could only imagine as a kid playing, you know? Well, I'm glad that you got to live that boyhood dream of being the Vulcan and you got to be part of this universe. And I want to thank you again mm. also just for today for your time, your generosity, telling us all these great stories and all this great insight into what you do. So, uh, Michael, it's been wonderful chatting with you today. So thank you so much for all of this. My pleasure. Great meeting you, Matthew. And I, I wish you all the success and happiness in the world and to all your viewers. Uh, thank you. And of course, because you were a Vulcan, we got to do this together now. we got to do the Live Long and Prosper, Michael. Live long prosper that's it for this week's episode of trek untold until next time don't forget to follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at trek untold all one word if you'd like to directly support this podcast please consider becoming a patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trek untold which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. Special thanks to Cool Waters Productions for providing us with this week's guest. Check out inhouse-con.com for more info on upcoming events with all of their Star Trek clients and the other celebs that they work with, and head over to coolwatersprod.com to pick up autographs and more from all of them. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.